Welcome to Balance of Power on 103.9-1450-WKXL-NHTalkRadio.com. Also, wherever you get your podcasts, I'm Ken Kale, joined by our panel, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. Well, on the heels of a mass shooting in Georgia one week ago, another one yesterday in Boulder, Colorado, a gunman killed 10 people, including a police officer in a supermarket. Your thoughts, panel, as we open today's show on a very somber note. Alicia? Uh, well, certainly it's a tragic day. Yesterday was a tragic day. And just recently, there was a press conference held in Colorado. And I think the mayor of Boulder said it best. And that is that today is not the day for justice. Today is not the day for solutions. Today is the day to honor the dead and their memories and to mourn. And that is the topic I will stick to per his request. Very good. Congressman Hodes? There's really not not much to add. Um, it's sad. Um, it, and the my, my, my own feeling is just overwhelming sadness at the familiarity of it all. Um, and uh, uh, it's a sad state, it's sad for, it's, it's just sad. So I, you know, it's um, radio, doing radio is often a time for um, lightheartedness and, uh, but it's just a sad day in America. It's been a tough week. I agree. Obviously it's really tough in circumstances like this to jump right into the discussion as Alicia alluded to of solutions. We just find ourselves in this situation yet again. And yesterday highlighted that while so many things have been on hiatus over the last year, gun violence in America has actually not. We have not heard as much about it because there have been so many other headlines. But last year, 41,000 people died in shootings. That's a record in modern American history. And we were reminded that the Atlanta shooter actually passed a background check. And granted, there was no waiting period, so he immediately got the firearm that he was seeking to purchase and later used. So clearly what we're doing in America is not working. I think we would all agree that the question of whether we start to do something different and whether there's a consensus that will finally emerge on doing something different, that remains to be seen. I'd like to think that the answer is yes, but history would suggest that the answer is going to be no. Well, the shooting in Georgia that left eight people dead, six of them Asian-American, has uh, led to a national focus on anti-Asian bias and incidents of violence. Uh, Paul, your show yesterday looked at the issue in New Hampshire, and what did you hear? Well, uh, yesterday on Capitol Close-Up, um, which folks can find uh, from the website beyondpoliticspodcast.com. Um, we uh, had a panel of three Asian Americans from New Hampshire. Uh, Cindy Corey, a real estate entrepreneur from the Seacoast, uh, Representative, State Representative Latha Majapudi, the first Indian American state representative in New Hampshire history, uh, and Cora Kisambing King, who is the co-chair of the AAPI, which is 
the Asian American Pacific Islander Caucus, which is a national caucus. And the three women spoke in very emotional uh, terms, uh, relating stories about their experiences in New Hampshire. So it was very affecting and emotional. And I, I really invite our listeners today to listen to that show just to hear the experiences of three people, um, a Filipino American, a Korean American, and an Indian American on living in New Hampshire uh, as uh, members of a minority. Well, the biggest uh, political story this week is that the U.S. House, which of course is held by the Democratic Party, is taking up the case of an Iowa election that came down to a six-vote margin in favor of the Republican. The Constitution gives the House the right to adjudicate disputed elections, and there is evidence that there are more than enough mistakenly excluded ballots to overturn the election. But Republicans and even some Democrats say that this is a politically uh, tone-deaf uh, endeavor and uh, even a disastrous thing to do in the wake of Republicans trying to overthrow the result of the 2020 election in favor of Donald Trump. Is this the right thing to do, Alicia Preston? I, I think this is a terrible idea from a PR standpoint, from an election integrity standpoint. Uh, I recognize that if the parties were flipped, they would probably be trying to do the same thing in Congress, and I would oppose it just as much there. Um, the Iowa Secretary of State has certified the results of an election, period, end of story. Just like when Donald Trump wanted to have elections in various states overturned after the various secretaries of states had certified the election, I said no. It is over period, the House of Representatives trying to overturn a certified election in the wake of what happened with Donald Trump and that entire fiasco is so off the mark. And, and again, both from the standpoint of the integrity of elections in the eyes of the American people and just from an optic standpoint, um, I think, and we're discussing other topics later, I think they're in charge. They know they're in charge. They, they are running rampant because of their power. And I think it's an embarrassment. Paul Hodes. Well, Congressman Chris Pappas agrees with Alicia Preston. Uh, Congresswoman Annie Custer is silent, apparently, on the matter. When people tried to reach her, the loud, the loud, uh, the loud response was, no comment. Um, and uh, that tells you volumes about at least how the folks in our New Hampshire representatives look at this. Um, does Congress have the power to do it? Yes. Should they do it? No. Uh, I think it plays into um, a, a scenario that Democrats really don't need to take on at this point. Um, as Alicia said, uh, yes, it's a super close election, six votes. Yes, there may be uh, evidence of irregularities, but if my understanding is correct, uh, there was a recount, there was a review of the recount, and the election results were certified by a bipartisan board uh, uh, in, in, in the state. It seems to me to be misplaced enthusiasm, shall we say, uh, by the Democratic majority, whose time could be better spent doing other things 
in my humble opinion. Matt Robeson, your view? I agree, especially with Alicia. The Democratic Party needs to see the forest for the trees here. They're in the middle of trying to advance what they view as the most important piece of legislation in this Congress and maybe for the decade, which is the For the People Act, which addresses globally the issue of democracy reform, election reform. We talked on this show about how that has become the new fault line in American politics. It is seen as an absolutely existential issue for Democrats and an actual absolutely existential issue for Republicans. And so to mess with your own narrative on that critical, strategic, existential piece of legislation is more than tone deaf. And Ken, as you suggested, it is politically disastrous. I know that people don't get into the weeds of this election, that election. Most, most Americans aren't going to follow this per se. All they will take away from it is, wait a second. I thought Democrats said that you, you, you can't overturn elections like this. You have to, you have to let states certify the elections. I, it, it's, it, it is dumb. By the way, there is sort of a New Hampshire historical precedent to this that is informative, the 1975 election between Republican Lewis Wyman, Democrat John Durkin. It is famously, at least in political nerd circles, the uh, closest election in American history. It came down to a margin of victory of just two votes. Wyman won on election day by 355 votes. The first recount flipped it to Durkin by 10 votes. The next recount flipped it to Wyman by two votes. It played out in the Senate. The point is, in situations like this, the margin of uncertainty is and always will be greater than the margin of victory. No matter how many times you recount, there will always be a certain number of ballots where there's uncertainty and you can adjudicate as they are in Iowa. Well, a, a voter sealed this one with a piece of tape. Is that okay? Well, it doesn't follow the rules. The margin of uncertainty is always going to be greater than the margin of victory. House Democrats need to let this go stay focused on the bigger picture. Since we're talking about dorky political people statistics, I have one too on this matter. And that is in 1933, since this House panel that's allowed to you know, take this potential overturn the election up, 110 races have applied to have it overturned. They only considered three, two, they did not overturn it. And the third one was so close, they couldn't decide they did not seat a House member. There you go. You I, learn something new every day. You had me program. at dorky political statistics. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I owe me more, Alicia. Really, I was waiting with bated breath. No, that's that's yeah. that's how. Yeah, yeah, that, that was really that was a teaser. That, that really, was, no, that's good stuff for that's, me. That got me dorky political <laughs> stuff. That's what we do. Yeah. Oh man. Hey, hey, we're uh, the dorkies. <laughs> Well, in 2017, Donald Trump said, and I quote, newspapers, television, all forms of media will tank if I'm not here because without me, their ratings will go down the tubes, end quote. Well, guess what, folks? Donald Trump was right. The Washington Post reports that barely two months into the post-Trump era, news outlets are indeed losing much of the audience and the readership that they had gained while Donald Trump was in office. CNN is doing the worst, losing 45% of its primetime audience in the last five weeks. What does this say about the news media, politics, and us as American consumers of the news, Paul Hodes? Well, look, in the first place, 
Does anybody really like Wolf Blitzer? What an unctuous guy. I mean, what an annoying person. Uh, I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't watch Wolf Blitzer. Even, even when I was married to the news, like, you know, a daily ritual, I, Wolf Blitzer, I don't know. Um, Cuomo, uh, he's annoying too. I don't know. There's something about him. He and his brother both are, you know, it may be old toast. I, I don't know. So as far as CNN goes, uh, they should go back to reporting real news and not try for the uh, infotainment business. Now, what's interesting to me is that in the wake of January 6th, for the first time, the Rachel Maddow show in MSNBC overtook Fox News uh, in the wake of January 6th. And uh, Rachel, Maddow, uh, Rachel Maddow soared. Uh, Fox News fell back uh, starting around January 6th. So I don't know what that says other than how fickle the American electorate is. Now, that said, Donald Trump was never a, a real politician or a real president uh, or uh, anybody who understood the first thing about politics. What he did understand was TV uh, and Twitter, uh, and his ugly mug was uh, ample fodder for an entertainment-hungry nation, which also probably doesn't care that much about the dorky nerd stuff that we talk about, the weeds of politics. I mean, who really cares when you've got a bloviating, blowhard, big-headed, orange-top, carrot-top uh, idiot as president bloviating about uh, about everybody he runs into. I mean, that's good television. I mean, remember, he came from, from The Apprentice. He came from You're Fired. He was, he was, he was, a, he was a nightmare, a made-up creation of our worst fears of what politics could be. But it made for interesting television because he knew that outrage sells. Now, on this radio program, I don't know. We don't really engage in that kind of hyperbolic stratospheric bloviation, except for me occasionally. We're mostly in the political nerd category. I suppose that if we took a page from Donald Trump and went out on crazy limbs and called each other bad names. And I mean, I reserve my bad names for Donald Trump, let's be fair. And I, I own that. I, I, I have all kinds of insults for him. I, and I'm just at the beginning of it. I mean, I'm just warming up. But that said, Donald Trump was good for television ratings. And during the crazy time of Donald Trump, we cared more about entertainment probably than what was really going on in government because what was going on in government was too awful to contemplate. Now we're back to that boring, that boring democratic, yeah, we're governing kind of politics. Yeah, yeah, we passed $1.9 trillion. Yeah, we're rescuing the economy. Yeah, we're trying to restore democracy in America and the world. Yeah, we're actually doing stuff. Imagine that. How boring is that to actually govern? Alicia, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Well, first of all, I agree with Paul. You know, Wolf Blitzer could be interviewing a dog breeder and somehow would condescend to the puppy. So I'm with you, Paul. You know, I see this. I am one of the people who stopped watching cable network news six, eight, ten months ago 
because, you know, the CNN was just a political arm of the Democratic Party, Fox News, a political arm of the Trump White House. It was exhausting. I prefer, you know, network morning news where they give me tidbits of top line news, but can really focus on the recipe of the day or when Justin Bieber co-hosts. That, that's more my speed. <laughs> 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 that being said, um, you know, it's true. Everything Paul said is true. Look, whether you loved Donald Trump, and wanted to see what he was talking about or doing, hated Donald Trump and wanted fodder to criticize him, or were somewhere in the middle, like most Americans who just wanted to know what the chaos of the day was going to be, you tuned in to see what Donald Trump was saying or doing and what others were saying or doing about him. It was an entertainment value. It was a little bit, you know, I wake up in the morning sometime and like turn on the TV with my eyes closed and my ears covered being like, oh, what am I going to hear today? But I did it because I still wanted to know until of late. So of course, ratings went down. It was entertainment. It was a show. I don't think our government should be considered entertainment and a show, but it did for a period of time. It's over. We're back to the boring stuff. Yay for dorks like us. Matt Robeson. I think it's worth drawing a distinction here in terms of who the audience fall off is comprised of. And what's interesting is that underneath the statistics, Fox News hasn't really changed much. Now, remember, Fox News, even though it has not been in the front of the cable ratings pack, has actually remained extraordinarily profitable. They, they saw a 1% gain in revenue in the fourth quarter of 2020. And so it's not like they're suffering. The fall off in ratings has come almost exclusively from CNN MSNBC, and print outlets like Washington Post, New York Times. And so what we're talking about is the audience that's sort of built in for right-leaning cable news is pretty much staying the same. And they have some outrage to continue to fuel their viewing because they now have a President Biden. On the left, the people who got engaged by the Trump outrage are falling off the board a little bit. I tend to agree that that's kind of a healthy thing. The only thing that I'm worried about is what do the cable networks do to try to get the ratings back? I'm not sure that we're going to like that reaction and that, and that sequel. As they search out a replacement for those ratings, where does that go? I continue to go back to the thought that there is no good reason on earth why opinion and news should be in the same organization, whether it's in print or in television. It confuses viewers. It mucks up the value of the news, the, the unbiased value of the news. And it creates these fractured media bubbles that we all live in. So I'm concerned overall, but short term, sure. It, it, it's, it's great that people aren't hate watching on CNN quite as much. So wait a second, are you proposing that MSNBC and CNN become ordinary organs of, of reporting the news in an unbiased way? Are you removing from the left-wing panoply no, the, of I'm saying the opposite. No, I'm saying the opposite. I'm yeah. saying they should drop all pretense of reporting news. And ah. they should become what they should pretense? become fully opinion outlets. And more important, I think the New York Times and the Washington Post should divest their opinion section, their narrative creation section 
from their news section. Well, they've got an opinion page. I mean, and they've got a news page. You don't think that's enough for the New York Times to have 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 the opinion section? I mean, they've got an opinion section versus a news section. You think Anyone they're... who believes that those two are truly separated, ah, I've got some land in Florida to sell you. So you've got that implicit right wing bias against the New York Times because it's the New York Times. Shame on you. You come from New York yourself. So forget about it. I don't know why you're talking about the New York Times like it doesn't report the news anymore. It's all the news that fits we print. Media reports are that the Biden administration is preparing a package. That's another one of three trillion dollars in new spending for the economy. The bill is expected to include a focus on infrastructure, which has bipartisan support, but also several tax incentives like credits to help families afford childcare and to encourage energy efficiency in existing buildings. The White House is suggesting that the strategy may be to break the bill into two pieces with Congress tackling infrastructure before turning to a second package that would include more people-focused proposals like Community college free of charge, universal pre-kindergarten, and a national paid leave program. Are these the right policies to prioritize? And has Joe Biden turned from a cautious moderate to a wide-eyed progressive, Alicia Preston? Yes to the final question. (laughs) Uh, And I'm disappointed. I'm a Republican who wasn't afraid of Joe Biden as a president. I knew I wouldn't agree with him. I knew he wasn't going to be Republican. But... I sure thought he'd be a little bit more tempered uh, than he's being, and I was wrong. Uh, Look, this bill is ridiculous. I I don't like any bills that include so many different issues in one thing. Divided into two, it should be divided into like seven. What does universal pre-K have to do with free college? I mean, these are all separate issues that should be taken up separately, period, end of story. Infrastructure is very vital for the long-term needs and of the economy, of the country, of all aspects of our trade. And so I don't know exactly what it looks like, but in general, I'm for investment in infrastructure. It shouldn't be in a bill with any of these other things. You know, universal pre-K, that's that's just free daycare for everybody. I don't know when we turned into like, we're just going to give everyone everything for free because nothing is for free. I mean, are there landlords that are going to house these pre-K places and aren't going to charge rent and all the people that work there are doing it voluntarily so that there's no cost? The electric company is going to donate the electricity to the school so there's no cost that it's free? No, no, none of that. It's coming from taxpayers, burdened taxpayers who have spent a year struggling, many of us. And so none of these bills should be taken up together. They should be vetted independently and individually. And Joe Biden, slow your roll, bro. Congressman Hodes, your take. Um, I guess what I would say is um, it brings me back to my days in Congress. Oh, those halcyon days in the Pleistocene era. Dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was in Congress. And, and we would have the opportunity to vote on giant pieces of legislation. And there was always, it was always impossible to really, to really understand uh, and get through the legislation and figure out what all was was in it. I mean, there was when you pack legislation so full of so many things. Uh, frankly, it's a challenge for members of Congress to really digest it all. And often there's stuff in there you don't want. 
uh, and you end up having to weigh the balance. Is there more stuff that I like versus not quite enough that I don't like that I can I can hold my nose and vote? Yes, even as a Democrat for a Democratic bill, um, I was, Frank, believe it or not, on a sort of a on the side of the fiscally responsible Democrats. You know, I mean, I was a guy who went to Steny Hoyer and said, Steny, you know what we really ought to do? We ought to just cut all federal spending by about 10 percent and show people we mean business about the deficit. And that was in 2007. So here we are now facing enormous deficits, a big rescue plan. On the other side of the investments that the president wants to make, and, and, this, and the stuff he's talking about are investments in the future that have been long delayed. The good news is that these investments over time will be repaid many, many times over in opportunities that Americans have been waiting for for decades as wealth in this country has gravitated to the very top of the pyramid. For example, right now, the fortunes and uh, incomes of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk together uh, their their wealth is exceeds is more than forty percent of all Americans have the wealth of those two people. So we've got a huge huge problem in the country. We cannot survive as a country of the very rich and everybody else. So so the attempt with a big piece of legislation like this is to make investments that repay for the future. In concept, I support the general principle that we need to invest now for ordinary Americans for our future. Uh, on principle, I agree with Alicia. I would prefer to see things done in, in manageable chunks. Um, not that I've not been known to be a gluttonous gourmand when it comes to politics, and I'm happy to overeat a piece of legislation as it's placed before me, hot and steaming in a bowl that ought to contain just a little bit, but instead is pasta for four. I mean, I, I, I can eat that, but I really think manageable chunks would be good. I think infrastructure is critical. I think the energy provisions are critical. And then the people provisions, it should at least be three pieces of legislation. And the last thing I'll say is President Biden is going to go after the stupid tax cuts of 2017 that gave 83 cents of every dollar to the very top. He's going to do something about that, which is going to be a big pay for at least for the uh, about a, a almost two trillion dollars. So in terms of economic planning, invest in America, invest in the people, but do it in manageable chunks. Matt, your thoughts on this proposed $3 trillion bill? Joe Biden has not turned into a wild-eyed progressive. That's the reason that the White House is putting forward the strategy of doing infrastructure first, the grab bag of other policies second. The point of leading with infrastructure is that it does have bipartisan interest. It is very economy focused and it is expected to at least make an attempt to try to get some Republicans on board with something that really should be bipartisan to Alicia's earlier point. The argument of too many things in one bill doesn't wash for me. It's 
regrettable. There's also a rich history in this country of passing multiple things through the poop sandwich method. The only way that you can get the, you know what, to get through is to layer it in things that people want. That's how you pass things that are long-term investments that we all quietly behind closed doors know we need, know we need to do, but we also know they're going to get demagogued politically. So the way you do it is you layer them together with absolute must-pass things. That doesn't bother me particularly. The debt argument does not wash for me. As of today, over the next 30 years, Social Security faces a $31 trillion cash shortfall. Medicare faces a $71 trillion cash shortfall. The rest of the budget faces a $3 trillion cash shortfall. So the idea that you might undertake some investments for $3 trillion that you're going to, as Paul said, partially offset by raising taxes on the ultra rich, and that are also going to largely pay for themselves economically over time, does not trouble me one bit. The final point I'll make is that I do actually agree with Paul that many of the policies that are embedded in this kind of wish list of, de of democratic ideas are very popular with the American people and have a really strong economic justification. To go back to Alicia's earlier point about childcare, over the last year, during the pandemic and the economic downturn, we've seen a drop of 2% in the labor force participation rate. These are people, Americans, who choose not to participate in the labor force because they have to do something else. They don't feel like pursuing a job is worthwhile. I think one of the core Republican principles is to try to make people be incentivized to support themselves through work. The major reason that people have been dropping out of the labor force is the inability to care for their kids. The majority of that 2% drop is women who have chosen not to participate because the burden of childcare falls disproportionately on them. So there is a very strong economic justification for saying, if we provide universal childcare to young children, that will enable and incentivize women who have dropped out of the labor force to provide childcare, to go into the labor force again, resume careers that will pay for itself many times over in economic output and growth. See, this is gonna be a problem that I think we're gonna face down for years to come. We cannot use the last year to justify the next 30 years of what our government does. The last year is unique. Look, I'm a Republican. I think I've said this before. If you told me a year, I guess a year and a month ago, I'd be advocating for checks to be handed out to every American, I'd tell you you're out of your mind. If you said I would support the federal government assisting with $300 extra a week in unemployment, I'd tell you you're out of your mind. All the money that went to businesses to help them out, all the money that went to families, to states, for programs, about 90% of it, I would have said, you're out of your mind if you think I'll ever support it. I support every single piece of it because we saw what happened last year. This is a once in a lifetime, God willing, situation that we all went through as a nation and it's ongoing and it'll probably be ongoing with ramifications for the economy for a huge chunk of people for another six months to a year. I'm all for assistance right now. I am not for fundamentally changing how we function as a society and that goes to handouts 
for five years down the road when we are completely out of this epidemic and our economy's back on track and people are back at work and using the last year as an excuse to do it. And I think that's what's happening when you say, you know, well, people can't go to work because they've got to stay at home because kids are not school. I agree with that. That's why I support the stimulus money and all the other benefits that have been provided. We can't fundamentally change the face of how we run our society based on this one once in a lifetime horrible year that we all experienced. I don't think that anybody looking at what the Democrats have proposed would try to justify uh, what's in there by looking at the past year. I would say that uh, you need to look back 40 or 50 years to the um, uh, neglected investments that we should have been making in opportunity for all Americans to understand that in order to move us forward, and yes, uh, you could factor in the past year and the relief and the relief that has come. But in terms of the package that we've been talking about, these are, I mean, the Democrats, Democrats won the presidency, Democrats control the House, uh, Democrats now narrowly control the Senate. Um, and I have faulted my party often in the past for not acting like they own the place when they own the place. So, okay, we own the place. Our agenda is to provide opportunity for all, not just those at the top. And these are long, it's a long neglected uh, effort at, at adjusting um, the wealth imbalance in this country and providing the kind of opportunity uh, and smart investments in infrastructure and energy that we need to save the planet and reassert ourselves as a force for good in the world. And in terms of infrastructure, uh, there is no rational person who could look at massive necessary infrastructure investments and not understand that this is a jobs bill. It's about jobs, it's about opportunity, and it's investment. It's investing, it's not a cost. Now, I know the Republicans will demagogue about the cost. That's always the word, and it's why in messaging terms, if, uh, if anybody ever thinks about it, we ought to be talking about nothing but an investment uh, in the future. Whether it'll sell or not, I'm not sure, but I think Americans support investing uh, in America and in our future, and that's what this this, you could call it a wish list, you could call it a buffet or smorgasbord, you could call it whatever you want, but it's, it's actually smart investments, especially given the context that, that Mr. Robeson has pointed out for uh, the economics of what it means, and um, especially when it will be balanced or ought to be balanced by adjusting or reversing the tax cuts for the rich from 2017. I would say Alicia's making some fair points. And I would agree that I would not personally be on board with me with, with mechanisms that fundamentally change the construct of our society, right? We are not fundamentally a socialist country, nor should we aspire to be. What I do think should be the basis of some common ground between conservatives and liberals and centrists is the idea that, look, the, the, the recession we've gone through, the pandemic caused recession served as both a window and a lens for underlying problems. It's helped us to see some of the 
challenges that we faced for a long, long time, as Paul said, and it's magnified them. And so what we should be trying to do in this next phase is trying to address those underlying problems in a way that gives people the means in their own lives, through their own personal responsibility and effort and grit, to improve their own economic situations and life circumstances. That's why I support a robust expansion in support for childcare. It's because of labor force participation. It's to incentivize and make it really worthwhile for Americans, particularly women, to enter the labor force and be economically successful. It's why I support measures that incentivize people to invest in their own education in a way that will pay off in a value add way for the rest of the economy. I'm not sure that I'm on board with every last thing on the wish list, but I think if we look at everything that we're talking about here from, from a policy standpoint, through that prism of what is it going to take to help people be more individually economically successful and therefore for our whole country to be more economically successful in the future, there are some areas of common ground. In the last uh, couple of minutes we have left, uh, former President Donald Trump is expected to endorse Representative Jody Heiss in a campaign to unseat Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in next year's Republican primary. This comes in the wake of Trump's white-hot anger at Raffensperger, who refused to support Trump's claim that Georgia's 16 electoral votes were stolen from him. Is this the beginning of a Trump-fueled revenge tour that will hurt the GOP or just a garden-variety political vendetta, Alicia? Well, I think Donald Trump's lawyer should have a little more influence over the former president because last I checked, there's actually an investigation into his behavior toward the Secretary of State. Maybe he wants to stay out of that mix a little bit. But moreover, I wish we'd stop talking about Donald Trump. And I don't mean that as an insult to Donald Trump or to his supporters. I mean, because as long as we're still talking about Donald Trump and the shiny little object over here that the media loves to report on because it's better for their ratings, we're not talking about things like HR1. We're not talking about things like this $3 trillion omnibus proposal um, that's coming out with all these things in it. And as long as we're still talking about Donald Trump, we're not focused on what's happening in Washington. And as Republicans, we need to redirect our focus and get on that message. Well, so here's the spy cam report from deep inside Mar-a-Lago. We've sent our drone buzzing through the halls, echoing, echoing deep in the bunker that Donald Trump has constructed for himself. Many stories underneath that Mar-a-Lago palace and in it, he shuffles unshaven, uncoiffed in his bathrobe and slippers, televisions lining the hallway, flicking from channel to channel, muttering to himself, but I won, I won, I won. They still love me and I won. And so Donald Trump is as desperate to come back and have influence because you know, when he got elected, nobody thought he really wanted the job or liked the job, and he didn't really want the job or like the job, but he did like the power. And so he is plotting how he can assert his power. And what we know about Donald Trump is not, if nothing else, is he's all about revenge. He's the, he is the, the queen of revenge. He likes it. 
it feeds him, it makes him feel good. And so this is just a feel good thing for Don. He doesn't care about ah, Georgia, you know, well, forget about it, Secretary of State, whatever. I, you know, whatever, I, I don't care. Anyway, he doesn't really care about that. He just wants revenge. That's going to have to do it for this edition of A Balance of Power. For Alicia Preston, Paul Hodes, and Matt Robeson, I'm Ken Kale. We'll see you next time. 